Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Michael Casey and Sheila Warren for the Money Reimagined podcast as they explore the connection between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey. Hello, and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. My co-host, Sheila Warren, is out this week and next. So with the summer now upon us, we're doing something a little different. We're bringing you some great material recorded during the Consensus Conference in Austin in early June. This week's features Chris Giancarlo, former chairman of the U.S. Commodities Futures Trading Commission and co-founder of the Digital Dollar Foundation, along with Neha Narula, the director of the Digital Currency Initiative at the MIT Media Lab. They were guided by Coindesk's executive director of global content, Emily Parker, into a rich discussion about the coming digital currency wars. Chris and Neha discuss, debate, and deliberate on the social and geopolitical implications of the rise of international competition between central bank digital currencies, stable coins, and native cryptocurrencies. I hope you enjoy it. Please welcome to the stage my colleague, Emily Parker, who will be discussing this with uh, Christian Carlo, the former chair of the CFTC and founder of the Digital Dollar Project, and Neha Narula, director of the Digital Currency Initiative at MIT. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. Welcome, everybody. This is a very important panel because we are talking about a very cutting edge part of the digital currency landscape, namely central bank digital currencies. Now, I know some of you are probably familiar with what these are, but just for those who aren't, these are not Bitcoin, this is not Ethereum, these are digital currencies that are issued by central banks. And that brings up a whole range of philosophical questions. So both of our guests are sort of working on different versions of what a digital dollar, a United States digital dollar might look like. And so let's just get right into it. I think I wanna just start really big picture before we get into like the, the weeds. Let's start with Chris. Chris, why do we need a digital dollar? Why do we need it? Why can't we just use Venmo, PayPal, credit cards, what, what, stable coins? What's, what's the real like, powerful argument for even this thing existing? So let's divide need into a need to experiment from need to deploy. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we look around the globe today, 105 countries, virtually 95% of the world's GDP, are currently experimenting with central bank digital currency a digital bearer instrument. Of that 105, 50 are in advanced uh, exploration. 10 countries have already rolled out central bank digital currency, including China, which has put their, what they call their ECNY, their, their digital yuan, in the hands of over 250 million Chinese, and that's probably an understatement. So the, the answer is digital currency is not only being experimented with widely, it's coming. So what do we need to do in the United States? And that's to make sure that if it comes, that it comes with the right design features. And that's what we're doing today to experiment with it. 
That's great. That's a really good, that's, a, that's very similar to my own view. It's like, whether we like it or not, it's coming, so let's do it the best way possible. Um, but Nea, I'd like to hear your view, because basically, other than FOMO, <laughs> why do we need a digital dollar, right? Because what, what, what Chris is saying is, is quite accurate, that you know all these countries all around the world are, are doing it. China is like, at the, at the leader of the pack, but is that enough of a reason? Like, what, what, what are the use cases for it? Like, what beyond being just like, okay, we got to do it because everyone else is? Why, why, why? How will it benefit the United States? Yeah. So the way I look at it is, this is all part of the story of the evolution of money. Now we we have private money, so cryptocurrencies falls into this category. You know, banks, Venmo, your PayPal's, you know, company that's sort of uh, money that's that's done by the private sector by companies. But we also have public money. And probably if we did a survey of everyone in this room and we actually looked at the transactions you've been making, how you're receiving your your salaries, you know, what you're actually doing economically, you're interacting a lot with public money or with money that is anchored to public money. So public money is pretty important to a lot of people and to a lot of our lives. And the fact of the matter is that it's not going to stay stagnant. It's just not going to stay the way that it is. So much of what we do is moving online, is moving into the digital realm. And that needs to evolve and get better. We need to have micropayments. We need to have programmable money. We, we have so much that we need to do there. And private money is a huge part of that story and so important and is really leading the cutting edge. But public money needs to evolve too, and it will evolve. You, you know, we're not going to be using Fedwire and FedNow 100 years from now. We just aren't. It's, it's going to be a new system. It's going to operate in a different way. And we need to figure out what we want that system to look like. So to me, this is all part of that evolution of money. It's very natural. Technology doesn't stand still, and our public money shouldn't stand still either, especially as we move from the analog to the digital realm. You know, we, we need to think about cash. Cash is so important. It's such a critical part of, of how we maintain public trust in money. And I think it's really important to think about what digital cash might look like. But so, like, what are the use cases? So, like, why why not use stable coins, right? So, stable coins, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with, are basically you know digital currencies that are linked to fiat currencies like the U.S. dollar. And there's plenty of them around, and there there's more coming out basically by the day. So, why do we need to get the Fed involved? I mean, why can't we just sort of use you know stable coins for this this purpose? So I think stablecoins are an important part of the story, and they're going to be critical for evolution. They're going to be incredibly valuable in terms of innovation. It's not an either or, mm -hmm. it's and. Mm -hmm. It's crypto and stablecoins and public money as well, forming an anchor of trust to all of that. So let's just go to a very big elephant in the room, which Chris has already mentioned, which is China. We can't really have this conversation without talking about China. So China has been leading this effort for central bank digital currency. In fact, theirs is already there. They tested it during the Olympics. Chris, why does this really matter, though? I mean, how much is China's CBDC really going to impact the United States? Is it, or is it just them kind of doing their own thing? Why are U.S. policymakers so concerned about this? So, so let's be really candid. China has now created the world's first benchmark for what a central bank digital currency can look like. And it, it's an important benchmark. It contains a number of technological features that are quite impressive. The ability to program it, for example. But it also has some features that we and say our, our, our free societies might be very concerned with. The ability to surveil their citizenry in their economic choices, but not only that, to censor them. 
If you, if you criticize the regime, you may find your digital yuan will no longer enable you to take a train out of your village or even rent the apartment you want or perhaps even buy the food you want. So it's a very, very powerful tool. And to think that it will just be confined in China, I think is a bit naive. This is going to be an export product. Those very surveillance and censorship features that are in the digital yuan are going to be features that many regimes around the world want. You can think how Venezuela or Cuba would want those same features. The People's Bank of China will be exporting CBDC in a, in a box, courtesy of the People's Bank of China, with those surveillance and those censorship features. You can imagine that within 10 years, a third of the globe might be using the digital yuan either because they're client states of the Belt and Road Initiative or they simply want those censorship features. So the question for us in a free society is, what is our response? What do we come up with if we go down the road of central bank digital currency? What values, what features might be in a digital dollar, might be in a digital euro? Would it be censorship light, which I think would make us not much better than China? Or hopefully, would it be something in the nature of a freedom coin, where privacy is absolute on that, on that coin, on that digital currency for lawful transactions? Those choices of values need to be made today, and they apply equally to stable coins. Will stable coins be used the way social media has been used at the behest of government to censor some conversations, some expenditures? And so the issue of values in the future of digital money, whether it's run by the private sector or the public sector, are the questions before us today. And that's why initiatives like what Neha is doing and what we're doing at the Digital Dollar Project are meant to explore these. The choice of deployment will come later. The choice of experimentation must be taken today. So just to sort of play devil's advocate here, though, um, you know, and, and, and I'd be interesting to hear Nea's views on this. In terms of China exporting its model to the rest of the world, is that really going to happen? Because, you know, look at China's internet. China has been doing its own thing on the internet for a long time. That ship has already sailed, right? They have a completely different attitude towards, you know, internet monitoring than the United States, for example. But that hasn't come to the United States. The U.S. does its own thing. So... Will China's CBDC really kind of impact all these other digital currencies around the world, or is that just sort of a fear that might not come to light? So, Emily, I think, I think the key to recognize here is that there's a risk. We don't know the answer, but there is a risk. And it's you know really interesting what you talk about with China's internet. China's internet might not be you know happening in the in the United States, but it's certainly taking root in Asia. And you know you're seeing this divide. Also, I don't know how many people here use TikTok today. That is a Chinese company. That's a Chinese app. And we'll probably see many more things like that happen. But even if you don't want to look at it from this geopolitical angle, I think what Chris said is so important, which is that we need to think about the values that we want to embed in our money. What are those values and principles? Values of freedom, of openness, and of privacy. And I think people often hear the term CBDC, they automatically go to surveillance point. Sure. That is immediately where they go. And, and you know that's actually why we got involved in this work. Not because we want to help build that future, but because we want to make sure that it's possible to build a different future, which embeds privacy and openness and access into our money. And it's so important to get involved right 
now. Right now is when we are starting to define some of these terms and define the standards. So we really have an opportunity here to, to show a different way of building this type of technology. Okay, so that's, let's dig into this for, for a little bit. So, I mean, first of all, most Americans, I think, have no idea that a digital dollar, they have no idea that, the, they, I don't think most Americans are really tuned into the CBDC debate, but the ones that are, I think you said it quite accurately, they're like, no way, like, <laughs> this sounds terrible, right? Because I think it's a very American thing to be like, sure, I'll just give whatever data, you know, Facebook or Google wants, but if it's the US government, like, no way, you know? And so I think there's this idea that, you know, if we have a CBDC, um, you know, the US government's gonna know every transaction I make at CBS or whatever, right? So, but, but I guess, you know, there, there's, there's some reason for that. And so I'd like to hear from both of you, since you are both working on digital dollar projects, how do you do this and also have privacy, right? Because this, I mean, this is a question that exists very much in crypto, but especially when you get anything, you know, central bank involved, how do you, how do you have a private CBDC? It does sound like somewhat of a contradiction in terms because, I don't know, Neha, let's start with you. If you can just get into like, is this even possible? So the, the short answer is yes, we think it's possible, but there's still a large amount of work to be done. And the really exciting part is we can look at what's happening in the cryptocurrency world. We have very strongly privacy preserving coins in the cryptocurrency world. That technology exists and it works. It's not perfect. There's still data. Data is a sneaky thing. Once it gets out there, it's out there. So you really have to think very carefully about how to secure it properly. But we have a lot that we can bring over from the cryptocurrency world, which has been integral and encouraging cryptography development in zero-knowledge proofs and multi-party computation and homomorphic encryption and just regular plain old encryption, which, which works very well. So we have a lot of these tools and these techniques that we can bring to bear in the central bank digital currency problem, but it's not just a technology question. It, it, the technology might be there, but making it work practically is the real challenge and making it fit into regulatory regimes or helping alter those regulatory regimes to be more cogent and more coherent in the world, in this new world of technology is also gonna be a vital part of this. But I'm optimistic. I think that there's a lot we can do. I'm especially optimistic because we speak to a lot of central banks around the world. So at MIT, we're working with the Boston Fed, the Bank of Canada and the Bank of England on a research collaboration around technology for CBDC. And everyone ranks privacy very high on their agenda and all, you know, no central bank wants that we speak to wants to become a surveillance state. They don't want that data. They want to learn how they can be privacy preserving. Yeah, I mean, you could argue that it's actually the reason why the U.S. has been so slow in developing a digital dollars because they are concerned about privacy. At least that's what you know, Fed Chair Jerome Powell said. So that's 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 a good uh, sign, I guess. Uh, Chris, what, what are your thoughts? So, so when, look, whenever you go from an analog system to a digital system in any in any walk of life you now are freed of the technological constraints to make design choices. The question of privacy in a digital dollar, a digital stablecoin, is a design choice. The question is, what, do we what are our values? The work that Neha has done at MIT, the Bank of Boston, the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston, is so important because they've explored an architecture upon which those design choices can be made. So when we think about a digital dollar, we should not automatically presume government surveillance what we as a free society should uh, require, what we should demand is privacy, because that's what we do in a free society. In fact, if you think about it, if, if we get it right, a digital dollar could be the most private instrument on earth. Why? Because our federal government starts with the restriction contained in our Fourth Amendment against invasions of privacy, which our private stablecoin operators are not subject to. 
I mean, yeah. isn't it interesting that our Constitution prohibits our government from censoring our speech, but the, but the private sector in social media is not restricted from censoring our speech and does it all the time. So you can imagine a world in which privately operated digital money is subject to censorship, but government-operated digital money, if we're true to our values, would not be subject to censorship. But all of these are choices that, fortunately, in a free society, we get to make. Money's as much a social construct as it is a government construct. And in a free society, we should be as actively engaged in the design of digital money of the future, both in the private sector and the public sector, to make sure it accords with our values, as opposed to what's happening in China, where the government is setting its values and imposing it on its citizenry. So we're here to call for that experimentation, hopefully to get these design choices right. So the future of a digital money, the digital dollar, a digital euro, is one that empowers us to greater freedom, not restricts our activities. Actually, I, I really love that point um, because again, you know, all the people who are freaking out about privacy of a CBDC are assuming that private companies respect privacy, right? And it seems less likely that the U.S. government is going to issue a CBDC with like a hundred-page long terms of service in like six-point font. You know what I mean? So, so yeah, I think I think because there's so much alarm about privacy with the government, it actually might be Look, safer. Yeah. Nobody's more free market than I am, but I go and meet with folks from the Cato Institute and other um, uh, libertarians, and they all freak out about government money. And I say, wait a minute, why should we assume the private sector is going to be any more right. protective of our privacy? In fact, let's force our own government to live by the principles contained in our constitution, which protects our privacy. If we do that, if we were to get a digital dollar right, it would be the killer app of digital money. A digital dollar that properly protected privacy would be the instrument of aspiration for free people around the world. It would be the instrument in which people would flock to, protecting the dollar's uh, reserve currency status for more generations to come. But on the other hand, if we don't get privacy right, we would destroy the dollar and empower things like Bitcoin and others, which I'm not opposed to that. But getting it right, is, as, as Ney has said a moment ago, Private, it all comes down to privacy being the key issue and other values in money. We'll get the technology right. She's, her, her organization has already proven that we can get the architecture right. The real question is, what do all of we insist f the future of money looks like? Whether that's government money or whether that's private sector money, we need to make our voices heard in that future. So I think while we're just talking about this as a killer app from both of you, I think just to help like the audience better envision what this is. Can you guys give some specific use cases for a digital dollar? Like where would you use a digital dollar that you wouldn't use, you know, your credit card or a stable coin or I mean, what are some cases where this instrument alone is necessary? Like specific scenarios sure. I think would be helpful for people to understand why we need this thing. Online commerce. Um, right, right now our financial system is a walled garden and without credentialed identity you cannot access it. In a world of eight plus billion people, a billion and a half or more do not have sufficiently uh, credentialed identity to access our current financial system. That means they're precluded from online commerce, they're precluded from financial services. If we could create basically a digital bearer instrument, like a cash-like instrument, a, 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 digital, a digital instrument that carried value, you would not need to have your value recorded at a banking institution. You would have it on your mobile device in the cloud accessible through your mobile device. So that's what we're talking about, a digital bearer instrument. 
It would enhance financial inclusion. It would lower transaction costs. Our current system takes anywhere between two to 3% of the world's GDP just to move money around the globe. Well, we've proven that we can make phone calls anytime, any place, time, at no cost. We can send a text message. We can send a photograph instantaneously at no cost around the globe. Why does it still cost so much money to move money? Why is it easier to, if I need to get money from here to London to stuff it in a suitcase and get on a plane than it is to send a wire transfer, okay? It makes no sense. Digital money will solve that. It will lower costs, it will lower barriers, and it will bring more money into, more people into financial inclusion than anything we have going today. Yeah, I, I would add, I think that's great. I, I would add just two more quick points, which is number one is improving competition. Right now, and Chris really nailed this, in order to transact digitally online, well, before, before Bitcoin, you had to have a bank account. You had, to, you had to sign up, you had to show your identity, you had to have somebody say, you had to sign that 100-page terms of service. Cash does not come with the terms of service. Anyone can use cash, no matter if you're rich, if you're poor, if you have a mobile phone, if you have access to the internet, uh, it doesn't matter, you can use cash. And that's what we're trying to replicate here, is we're trying to create an instrument which really anyone can use that, that solves for those corner cases when you can't get a credit card, when your bank is charging you really high overdraft fees, when you have trouble getting access. And having that type of thing available is like a pressure valve on the system. It improves competition, it improves interoperability, and it makes everyone in the system behave better because you've got this alternative. So that's what we're trying to create. And then the one thing I'd add in addition to that is a platform for innovation. That's the real problem with things like cash today. They don't work online, they don't work digitally, they're not programmable. And so you wanna, you wanna have another instrument with all of these features. And again, I wanna stress, this is gonna work in tandem with cryptocurrency and stable coins. The people who sort of act like it's a, it's a competition uh, or you know, it's either or, it just really, that's just not the case. If a country were to CBD, issue a CBDC and give everyone digital wallets, it would probably be a huge onboarding mechanism for cryptocurrency. It would start to get that, that wheel going. It would sort of, you know, it's all part of upgrading money. So when you so, talk about, just, just to clarify one thing, when you talk about programmable, just for people who might not understand what it means in this context, like that's the idea that, for example, you know, the US government, they want to give out some sort of relief after a disaster. Uh, and so they no, can- No, 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 that's you not know, exactly they, what I'm talking about. So that's a great point. So, so I think this is where we get caught up, which is fiscal policy, mm -hmm. right? So fiscal policy is certainly easier in a digital context. Mm -hmm. That is 100% true. But when I say programmable, that's not what I mean. I mean a platform for innovation. I mean the, a platform where the private sector can build on top of it, Got where it. developers can write apps that move money mm -hmm. in, in the way that they write applications that move data. And move money, not just in place or space around the world in seconds, but move money in time. Think about the ability to program your money to do things in the future. Think about the ability to actually program in your money to do something for your yet unborn grandchild that upon reaching a certain age and maybe whatever requirements you want, they've got a college degree, they're sober, whatever, provided those conditions are met, the money is there. For the first time in history, digital money will allow us to move money around the globe instantaneously and money into the future. It's absolutely, when we talk about programmability, the ability to tie money together with smart contracts will absolutely change money and democratize it. Because today, if you want to move your money in time, it requires all kinds of executors and lawyers and trustees, et cetera, et cetera, that may or may not follow your instructions when you're gone. The ability to program money will be able to move it in space and time.
That's really interesting. And yeah, even on a more simple level, like, you know, I was saying for disaster relief, it's like you could program it so like this money could be used for food and medicine, but not alcohol, for example, right? You know, that, that level of more basic programmability, which of course also alarms some people because they think it's the US government telling you what you can spend money on, but that's another. But just that sort of leads to my next question. So Neha, you mentioned cash and, you know, cash is kind of awesome, right? I mean, I think about this all the time, especially, you know, even when we look at cryptocurrencies, I mean, there, there are some that are really privacy protecting, but even Bitcoin as we know, is not fully anonymous. Cash is really the most anonymous currency that we have. So the question is, is you know, if this digital dollar ever happens and it becomes mainstream, like, will it eclipse cash? Because I feel like that's not a great thing. So I, I think what's important to note is that almost all the central banks we talk to do not want to get rid of cash. Mm -hmm. They do not see CBDC as a replacement for cash. They do not see it as a way of phasing out cash. They see it as a way of continuing to remain relevant as more and more transactions move digitally. That, that's the problem. Cash is great, but it just doesn't work digitally. It doesn't work across large distances. And I think, you know, we have a lot of work to do to get digital cash to a point where I would be comfortable with it eclipsing cash. Now, that is already happening in some countries. In Sweden, a big part of the reason that they even engaged in this work is because the use of class cash is declining so dramatically, and they're getting worried about it. They want to continue to provide a public option for money and payments, and so that's why they're engaging in this work. But like I said, most of the central banks we talk to, it, CBDC is not a reason to get rid of cash by any means. So, so putting the cash question aside, where do CBDCs fit into the larger landscape of cryptocurrencies? Because there's different views on this, right? You sort of hear people, including policymakers, kind of act like this is going to be some sort of substitute for Bitcoin. And then you hear others say, no, it's actually going to make the case for Bitcoin stronger. Where do you both fall on that question? Shall we don't? Sure. So very simply, when we think about money today, we really think about two types. Uh, Neha re refers to public and private. I, I like to think about it as cash, digital bearer instruments. That's about 10% of what we use. The other 90% are basically liabilities that sit on the proprietary balance sheets of financial institutions. Your bank account is a liability that they recognize to you. Your pension, your retirement money is a liability that an asset manager recognizes to you. That, that money, those liabilities are, are basically an analog system of recognition. What crypto is about is protocols that allow us to use the internet to recognize value. It no longer is money or value a construct that's a personal relationship between an institution and you. It's now on the internet. And in that regard, it's very much like the way the internet has revolutionized information, revolutionized entertainment, revolutionized so many activities, social interacting. It's moved it from institutional relationships, Encyclopedia Britannica, to more of a, of a networked relationship, uh, Wikipedia. And so when, we talk about, when I talk about crypto, I move away from thinking about it as just some funky new investable asset class more in the realm of a protocol that allows us to use the internet itself to establish value, value and value that's immutable, that lasts forever, and hopefully is a, non, a pseudonymous so that regulators can move away from an entity-based regulatory model that we have to more of an activity-based one, where we can maintain our anonymity in a new future of digital money, but where in the event of law enforcement needs, that pseudonymy can be, can be uncovered as necessary. And so if we get this right, the future of money is internet-based and it's digital. And to answer your question, I think there's a role in there for both private sector and public sector providers of money, as there are today. 
as there are today. So I think w the future of money is undoubtedly digital. The question is, what is it going to look like? And I'll leave you with this thought. If we get it right in free society, it's a combination of government and the private sector um, building toward the values that we expect to see in it. Uh, Neha, real quick, what do you think? Uh, digital dollar becomes mainstream, threat in Bitcoin, or reinforce its reason for existence? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, no threat whatsoever. I think the reason that people are attracted to things like decentralized cryptocurrencies is for completely different reasons than they might want to hold a, a centralized central bank digital yeah. currency. So I, I think it all works together. Like I said, it's all about upgrading the future of money. So we only have about one minute left. So uh, you guys are really on the cutting edge of this technology. I don't think we have better people on the stage to talk about this. So if you had to guess, will the US actually have a digital dollar? And if so, what are the time frame that we're looking at here? Is this something that could happen next year? Are we talking about 10 years? I mean, the US is definitely you know, behind just compared to other countries. So just real quick, we only have a 40 seconds. So what, what do you think, Neha? Let's start with you. Yeah. So, you know, honestly, people are surprised to hear about this because we work on this technology. I don't know if the U.S. should issue a digital dollar. I don't know that that's the right thing to do. The reason I'm working on this is to try to get more data and determine how we can, if we were to do so, how we do it in a responsible, privacy-preserving way. That said, it does sort of feel like the ultimate evolution of all money is digital. And there's probably going to be a role for public money in that. And so I can't see any way that, that every country doesn't ultimately move in this direction. Chris, real quick. I think the future of money is absolutely digital. And I think central banks will play a role. I can't say, uh, if you asked me a year ago, I thought within 10 years the US would be on a central bank digital currency uh, within 10 years. I'm not so sure that's the case. But like Neha, we have to be engaged right now. So if it becomes the case, if the U.S. deploys a digital dollar, it reflects our values as a free society. Thank you. Wonderful way to end this. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. Okay, thanks for joining us. We'll be back next week with another recording from the great content at Consensus. Bye for now. <laughs>